Hello and welcome to the Film Ireland podcast. I'm Gemma Cray and I'm chatting with production designer Ramsey Avery, head of the Render Festival, which is taking place in Belfast from the 23rd to the 24th of February. Thank you so much for chatting with us. Oh, absolutely. I'm very happy to do so. So we're we're chatting to you ahead of a, of a trip to Belfast to the Render Festival. Yes, that's actually the first time I'll get to go to Ireland. I'm very excited, both for Ireland and also for the festival itself. It looks like it'll be a very interesting chance to meet a bunch of people who are doing interesting stuff. Yes, because that like it seemed like I I had a, a look um ahead of our meeting and it seemed like a really fascinating um kind of like sharing space for ideas. Um, just tell me a little bit about uh, what are you going to be chatting about at the festival? Well, it's a it's a festival that is kind of um, emphasizing how digital technology is um, expressing itself through media and other formats. And I think what I'm bringing to it, as you can tell from my gray beard, is a certain amount of length of time and experience in the industry where I've experienced a significant shift in the way we both do things and the way things end up being transmitted and received. And the whole process, particularly in the last five or years or so, has has really started to shift and will continue, I think, to shift uh, rather exponentially. So um, I think that's that's what they've invited me to, to talk about is um, how I'm kind of straddling that analog and digital worlds, both between my history and the work that I do. So it's, yeah, so you've you've worked on like Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power, Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume Two, Spider Man: Homecoming. So a lot of those like they'd be synonymous with sort of CG worlds, but like he like physical interactions with the performers, um, and of how they kind of they meld seamlessly, like in in any of the ones that I've mm-hmm. seen, especially like Guardians of the Galaxy, like a universe. You're literally creating a, like a a very unique universe. I'm just wondering, um, tell me a little bit about. Like and or maybe is, is are you are you allowed in specifics or generalization? Because I know sometimes they sign NDAs because you're like, oh, you don't want to keep the the mystery a mystery. But like, how do you create it? Like, what is CG? What is real? How do you like create the things that actors interact with? How do you design the world? It's um um it's a it it varies from process um to process pro- um project to project and um. The t- taking as an example, Guardians of the Galaxy, um, which I was a supervising art director on, um, versus Lord of the Rings, um, those those had two very different kind of methodologies and intentionalities in the process of it. Uh, Guardians, Mar- Marvel as a rule tends to work in a very VFX heavy world. Um, it's both because they um, their storytelling process is is complicated and is evolving constantly. So they tend to leave themselves the open door of the visual effects um, processing much. Oh, they leave that door open much longer than many other projects do. So they'll do a lot of work in post to kind of craft and clean up the story. So they, in general, don't want don't always want to put as much real world into their environments as other projects do for example i mean that's and and actually i'm on a, i'm on a marvel project right now and we're actually doing the exact opposite the intentionality of this one is to do something almost entirely in camera 
I was thinking that with the Eternals, there was so much CG in it. And I was like, and I was like, oh, wow, like the whole of this realm was. And I was like, and but you could kind of tell. And I was like, that was kind of an interesting choice. And and some of it is so tangible and you can you can kind of feel the textures and things. And then then you kind of move to this kind of world. And it, you're it, like it does create a very different feel as the as the viewer when you're watching it. It's really good to get that insight into why that's the case. Well, I, there's, I mean, in the case of some of the Marvel work, it's because that idea of keeping the flexibility opening up in the storytelling. There's also just in general, like Guardians is takes place in cosmic environments, right? Those aren't things that you can go down out the corner and find anywhere to shoot. I mean, almost everything we shot in Guardians was shot on a stage. And those environments are so vast. And some of them, particularly the stuff on Planet Ego, were so complicated. There was um, almost no way to physically build those in any in any affordable or time efficient manner so they just naturally lend themselves to um to uh to visual effects worlds the um the, the actual the when i started um on rings of power the showrunners had the exact opposite sensibility they wanted they felt that it was super important to ground the audience in the world to make the world as you were saying completely tangible so their their goal was as much as you can put it in camera, we'll figure out how to find the funding and the time for you to build the scenery to put it in camera, as opposed to um, we'll solve that later. So literally, we had we pretty much if you're if you're watching, generally speaking, that series, pretty much anything in the camera strike range where actors are is real. I mean, there's some scenes like when you're crossing the bridge in Casa Doom and there's the vastness of the caverns beyond. Of course, that's all visual effects. But when you're in the city of Numenor, almost everything there is is real. We built acres of, of city there and built it 40, 45 feet tall. I'm not going to do the math, uh, 15 meters tall um, to, to, to see, to make sure that things where actors were was actually in camera and that it makes such a difference um for the actors to be able to walk into that world and feel the world they don't have to spend the extra effort creating the world in their head they can just be in the world and now they can be their characters and and it, it really i i feel over the years having talked to actors and watching actors in and in, in, you know on these stages when when you can give them that tangibility, I think in general, you get a, a better performance and a better storytelling out of it. And the team that you're on that's doing it for those projects, like how big are we talking? Like how many kind of bodies on set to, to and, and what time frame, if on a something of that massive scale, are you given? Yeah, well, the Rings of Power tends toward almost an avatar sense of, of scale of process, right? It's complete world building. And, and in that sense that we were trying to create eight hours of complete world building. So it, uh, you know, Guardians, probably the biggest our art department crew was, was probably 45 people in, in the art department. And we had 400 people in construction, building things. And, you know, another 70, 80 people probably in set deck doing doing that type of work, the set decorating, the the, the props and the dressing and all of that stuff. On, on Lord of the Rings, we, we had at, at the largest single point in the art department, we had 75 people working in the art department. And again, there was like another 350 people in construction. There was another 40 people doing the greens. There were people, there was another 100, 150 people in the, um, in set tech. It was a real army of people because, because of that, trying to make everything absolutely as real and tangible as we could. It was a, a much, um, 
much more intensive effort with really, I have to say, remarkable people. The, the crews that we were working with in New Zealand were stunningly talented and deeply passionate. So um, in a lot of ways, that, that actually added more capacity to our capabilities because they were so good at what they were doing and so interested in doing it. Wow. And what would be some of the kind of smaller scale things? Like, do you like like, is there, is there a mix? Would you do both? Would you just not take that on at this stage of your oh, career now? Or no, is it... I, I, I came back from Lord of the Rings and I did a pilot for another Amazon project, a very small pilot where it was mostly one contemporary office building, which was kind of nice to actually design something that we could light with electricity and not have to light everything with fire or sunlight. Um, the And then I went on to do a, a smaller movie for Fox, uh, a kind of a thriller movie. So I, what I, what I, what I like, doing is finding projects where the world building is critical to the storytelling that um that trying to create that sense of what's happening in the area behind the actors and what the actors are interacting with is critical to the path and the narrative of the storytelling so that's not a scale thing um you can do very small things i mean i worked on a project i designed a movie called waitress a while back which is waitress waitress the... yeah yeah with Terry russell yeah yeah i love that i know went to the <laughs> musical recently as well it's yeah, the musical is fun as well. Yeah, same same yeah. producers actually. So that was uh, at least some of the same producers involved with it. And but that you know that was a mil we had a million dollars for that entire movie. That I, the entire movie was under a million dollars for wow. for Rachel. But it was still the same thing. We had to take parts of Los Angeles and create this small town in the south out of California. You know, and so that that I loved doing that too because it was it was a challenge certainly to work on that kind of small scale but but because we were doing something that the world was so inherent to making that character jenna feel trapped in her world but also a warmth to the world in there all of that was very fun world building so it's not amount of scale it's a matter of what what i can bring to the project in terms of um, whether it's digital or analog what, what i can bring to the project to help make that world very tangible and critical to the to the path of the story and actually that's a very good point so you we just say for example I'm first time director and I'm going, okay, I have a character. I want to make them feel very afraid. What elements of production design could you um, utilize to do that? It's well, it's, I mean, back into the, the basics of it, it's all about, well, for the first thing, we're the thing we design in film and television, um, kind of more so than I've done a lot of stage work. It's and it's kind of more critical in film and television than it is in some ways in stage. Oh, this is that's not an absolute truism. We're not designing walls, you know, we're designing light because yeah. it's all about what the camera sees and what the eye sees, and that's light. That we're not seeing concrete, we're seeing how light plays off of concrete or brick or trees. Textures water. And... and yeah and and how the light bounces off of those things and how light creates the color and the shape and the volumes that's what we're trying to to sculpt so for example if i wanted to make somebody scared there's there's a couple of ways you could approach that but you think about it in terms of how the light plays and defines the world around them they could be scared because they're in a tiny dark enclosed environment and so that's claustrophobic and it's so tight you don't know what's right around the corner the opposite could be true that you can make a world that's vast and desert and bright and there's this teeny tiny figure in the middle of this broad environment and that also makes them scared so it's not 
just the particular scene, but it's how that scene plays into the overall narrative arc and whether you want to go from that broad expanse into something tighter or whether the story is tight, 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 and then freedom at the end. And so so you, you look for those components of how color, light, and volume shape how the character is interacting within the frame. A, a lot of times you can even think about it. We have... Um, I've done a lot of work in themed entertainment and theme parks as well. And you can walk into a space and you have a visceral response to how that space is based on how the air is flowing, how the light is working, how it smells, you know, how the, how you, you we're, we're, we're creatures that actually have this kind of response to that environment. So trying to figure out how to put that environment that we feel into the frame is, is really the process. That's brilliant, actually. That's so interesting because I'm my husband is forever like we go into a restaurant and be like, oh, I don't like this chair. I don't like the way the light is, and I don't <laughs> right. know why. I'm just like, oh, I don't know. Can I swap yeah. seats? And he's like, oh my god, just relax and eat your food. And I'm like, I won't enjoy it as much. But I never knew why. But actually, that's exactly it. Like it is yeah. that that like you know you're I suppose we're physical creatures like yeah. and, it, and our body is like a, a series of systems that is reacting to all these like response and air and stuff so that's that's really really interesting yeah and the goal is to try to get that conveyed on film so that the audience can then feel that same thing that they would feel if they were in that room themselves and and tell me a little bit about so about how technology has shifted that like obviously you're creating the worlds but what like the way that we view and use it has that changed it is 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 the 3d printing has that changed your job at all oh. as well like what what is what are the kind of differences that you've noticed over the years well it's it's um man that there's so many of them um and on I mean on just just on the on the technical end of it there are projects um where you could employ a lot of people that you would first do a hand-painted thing, right? And if you had to change the hand-painted thing, you had to scrape the paint off and repaint it or start over again, right? So that all the artists that I started working with were originally working in acrylics and even oils and watercolors. And that process, right, is a very different process than clicking and erasing a couple of pixels. So the time frame of all of that is, has shifted massively Um over the years. And then when you take that illustration, and then nowadays we actually will almost always, even illustrators will model in 3D before they paint so that there's a volumetric characteristic to all of our design underlying the, the concept art. And that model then goes to our set designers who then develop that model into something more specific. That model then goes off to visual effects if they need to. To, to, to make their stuff happen if it's a visual effects scene, or that model goes into a next line of people who start to break that model down into drawings. And then those drawings will go off to construction. Well, over time, that's even gotten simpler. I mean, there are cases now where once we have that model, we send that model off to construction or a construction company, and they'll have people that will just break that model down into files that then can be CNC'd, right? So you're eliminating multiple steps in the process. It means the model has to be absolutely right, because previously the model could be much rougher, and then you would refine it in the drawings. So that there's different ways that the time works on that. But the, the idea, like there, there were environments, um, for example... Strangely enough, like um, in Guardians of the Galaxy, um, almost everything was hand sculpted. 
um, with the exception of some of the spaceship lines um, in there. Um, all of the Ego environments were hand sculpted. Um, even Ego's ship, which we originally talked about milling that those shapes out of foam, um, ended up being hand sculpted. As opposed to a lot of Lord of the Rings, which is actually a much more organic looking show, like all of the rock work, we would design the rock work in a model or we would sculpt a small maquette model out of it. We'd scan that model and then our set designers would layer in digital, that model digitally, send that off, break that down into CNC. And so then we would come back with these rock walls that had these wood ribs. Yeah. That then we laid plaster on top of. So the whole underlying process of a natural of a natural looking rock wall is actually digital. Wow. You know? So it's um, and we do print things like props, particularly a lot of the weapons in Lord of the Rings, for example, a lot of the guns are are, are laser weapons in Guardians. Those are printed. Those are all 3D printed. So even even with that was actually one of the things that we had to work really hard with in in Rings of Power was that all of the 3D processes are very mechanical and very computer. So we'd have to go back in and rework everything by hand to make sure that they look individualized and that they were crafted by hand. But the 3D printing and the molding processes sped up all of that initial work tremendously, make, making it possible to make 1,500 swords. You know, it was just. Um, it the, the, all of that uh, digital processing has certainly opened up our palettes and in certain and it made making making things simpler in in a lot of ways. I know, and people are people like in in some ways, right? People are kind of saying that you know automation is sort of ruining it, but it sounds like there's always there's such a there's such a need for crew, and like I know here in Ireland, like and, and it's obviously on a much smaller scale for the most part. Like we we have we had foundation and we have Vikings, but like there's just such a like a massive need for crew there's the need to have bodies on set there's the need of that like and it just seems like the jobs are changing like some sort of will go obsolete but then some are really coveted like one of the things that i'm i'm hearing now that that, that people really need are like craftsmen mm -hmm. for, for different skills like do you find like it's hard to 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 crew up at the moment and to find people with those kind of like almost like a bespoke yeah, well, again, I think that, that it'll depend on a certain amount on the uh, the project at hand. It's it's pretty easy to see and see mill or three D print the components of a spaceship, right? Because um, you want those things to look slick and mechanical and not handmade. Um, you still need craftsmen because you would be surprised at then how much of that stuff is wood and foam that now we have to make look like metal so that there's a whole nother layer of finishing and scenic artists who come in and make all of that look like it's shiny chrome when actually it's foam, you know? So there's, um, there is that level of craftsmanship is, is still a requirement. And it, you're right. It's for the last five or six years, except for, you know, during COVID, it was really, it's been very hard to get crew and that's part of the reason why there's so much filmmaking going on everywhere in the world because it's just had to expand to the to, to where there might possibly be crew to do that but even when you expand the people that really have that skill set are not as common right so it's um particularly the kind of high level craftsmanship that that projects like rings of power or foundation or vikings you know because everything there that's a there's a level of finish in there that to be compelling 
Uh, well, one of the things that's that's also interesting, we don't shoot on film anymore, right? And film is very forgiving. It's got a grain. It's not high resolution. When we're filming now in 4K or sometimes even in 6K, those that resolution is higher than the human eye can see. So you can't even see the things that are going to end up on the on the screen at the end. And you'll be surprised by the level of detail and the depth of field that these new digital cameras can see. Things stay in focus much more than you want them to be in focus. So you need really good craftsmen to make those details. We can't get away with the stuff we did 10, 20, 50 years ago because the camera now sees every imperfection. So we really need good craftsmen to to make sure things look good in that level of resolution. And it's so funny. It's like when like people say, oh, like cinema is is dying. And it's like, no, there's, there's such a hunger, especially for those types of productions, like that really big spectacle and um, that really kind of rich environment. Like Guardians, definitely. Like I'll always go see a Marvel or a Guardians in the cinema because it's like the, that's part of the experience is the sound and the like capturing all those details what do you find are the the sort of bits of the job that maybe like lay people don't know about or like or would be surprised to hear well I I think just in general the amount of effort that really goes into every every frame I think nobody really quite gets it I mean it's I'm always amazed when I when I stand on a soundstage and it's this very intimate quiet scene between two people and then you turn around and there's 58 people standing around everybody from the the focus pullers to the sound guys to the PAs helping make sure that everybody's staying off the set who shouldn't be on the set it's a it's this army of people that we bring to to production to make even those most intimate of, of scenes happen. Um, I just, it's just that everything is a choice. You know, it's not, things don't just show up in front of camera. I I, I, I kind of often say that if I ever really, if I ever stopped to think at the beginning of the project, how many decisions I'm going to have to make, I just wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. It's just, it's just, um, it's, it's overwhelming. And I'm like, what is that doorknob? What is that pencil they're holding? How does that eyelash, those eyelashes work in terms of how the character's face is being perceived? I mean, everything is a choice. We'll sit in meetings and talk about the most mundane of details because they show up on screen and they mean something. And each one of those decisions has to be made by somebody. And like in your in your opinion, like what one what one of those things are sort of wrong? Do you know like what what were the ones that you're like, oh, that looks terrible on screen or or if you're like a first time student director never do this or like that doesn't <laughs> oh, work with this uh well there's so many things uh <laughs> white is not a friend of anybody unless you're doing a scene that is um that's specifically about harshness you know you don't really want a lot of white um because it's it, it just it 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 flares out and it makes it hard to see a face against it you know and so there's there's there there's I mean, Stanley Kubrick in 2001 had a really great white room, but that was a very specific reason for that white room, right? So there's there's reasons to 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 do that. Even on Ego, the white Ego's ship was to make the color of the play of the lights on the outside of it make sense within the white form. So that's you use it for the re- reflectivity of it. But the um, the um, uh, white is generally not going to be your friend as a first time filmmaker. No. Okay, and and stylistically, what are the things that you notice are are kind of shifting or like or where are we sort of going from and going to like you know I noticed there was a big resurgence especially in indie films of making everything kind of vaguely dated but like 
not like have everything have like is this set in the 90s 70s but people are using modern phones kind of feel on it and you notice like that was a real trend in production design like especially around here like what are the kind of things that you might have noticed or that you feel are coming up now um i i am i think one of the things that i don't know that it's necessarily a trend but i think that one of the things that we're struggling against and i think this is actually culture-wide i don't think it's necessarily just in filmmaking but um as a culture we're not necessarily moving forward um if you look at architecture or fashion um use of color or being human like people (laughs) (laughs) it feels like we're going I kept thinking this that it does feel like we're going into like the dark ages like (laughs) well we just I I think it's you know this is much more philosophical than perhaps um than it is uh logistically for filmmaking (laughs) but we because we have so many choices we don't we're overwhelmed by them. So, so we retreat into the, to our things that make us comfortable. Right. So, and because our world is at our fingertips now in a way that it never used to be, we can make those choices very deliberately. So if we like a color or a type of clothing or a type of movie making, then we can experience only that there's enough options to just live in that world. So there's no need to make another choice. And culturally, we don't all see the same things at the same time the way we used to. So if one change happens over here, it doesn't ripple out across everybody else anymore the way that it that it used to. So our music, you know, people listen to one type of music, they wear one type of clothing, they live in one type of, they decorate their houses in one sort of way. And there's no challenge to that because we can we can stay within our bounds. So I think one of the things that 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 has been that drives that in terms of filmmaking, particularly in the age of streaming, you're looking for niche audiences because you want that you want to grab that audience. So you direct your filmmaking, your storytelling, your visuals toward that audience you're trying to get. And so that um, that in some ways, I think, limits us in, 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 in the same way that when we used to try to make something appeal to everybody, um, that that's limiting as well too, because then you can't get maybe specific in a way you might want to get specific. So it, it's a different kind of um, narrowing of our creative opportunities by trying to do these niche things. That's very very interesting, and actually you can you can see it across absolutely everything, and you can you can see how you know like people that are doing stuff that's so broad are, are really struggling, and then people like you know like then there's these kind of niche films. Like even the way that like Megan was received, mm-hmm. like that was just such a huge response to people. Like yeah. they were like, people were shouting and like Irish cinema people, like I know in America, people shout at, at the cinema, like they do not do that here. Like, <laughs> like Jesus, my neighbor down the road is, is down there. And she thinks so. like people were like shouting at the cinema and those like, so you can kind of see like, yeah, these niche films are finding these niche audiences, but yeah, across everything, that we interact with the algorithm is keeping showing us the same things that we want like the streaming algorithms the facebook mm-hmm. algorithms the instagram yeah. algorithms selling us the style of things so that's that is just crazy that that's so true yeah so that doesn't feel like while innovation is happening it doesn't feel like it necessarily ripples across the culture as a whole the way that it used to when we were all watching the same television or the same film or reading the same books or um, listening to the same music it was you know it, it, it's just not it's a different the way we we inhabit our world is very different than it was 20 years ago 
Yeah. And just like, I mean, you've, you've kind of seen a lot in the time that you've been there. Tell me a little bit about how that you got to where you are. Cause I do think the, the production design field, it's so vast in many ways. Like it's, it's so all encompassing. It's not like, oh, you need to learn to edit and then specialize in a specific area. It's like, no, you need to know how to like what things look like design focus, building craftsmanship. Like it's just such a huge field. I'm just wondering what was your path in? Um, I very specifically, I started off as an astrophysicist major and, um, <laughs> and natural <got> the, flow <laughs> and got got the theater bug in college really strongly. So I kind of switched over into into theater and got my graduate degree in set design. I, I can imagine that conversation with with, with the, the parents. The yeah, it was it was definitely. Like, um, yeah. <laughs> and I you know, and, and when I went to grad school, I was accepted in a graduating graduate uh, in a graduate program for directing on the East Coast and a, a graduate program for design on the West Coast. And I was coming from Wyoming and the East Coast sounded scary. So I went to the West Coast. So I made a choice kind of just based on a comfort level between directing and design and ended up in design and just kind of lucked into the right program where I met the right people. And the, the day after I graduated from my, with my master's degree, I started working on television show on uh, the Cosby show, which then turned into Roseanne, um, you know, as a, and I just, as a PA and I just worked my, my way up and I, I've, I've had a very odd and kind of atypical career because I've kept my hand a lot in theater, particularly at the beginning of my career. And I've done a tremendous amount of themed entertainment design as well um i just uh, recently finished designing the avengers campus uh, at, you know for the disneyland resort um uh so that's um that, like, like so i've spent a lot of time doing that very tangible real world building as as well um and so it's just it's really been a matter of i've tried to guide my career to the places where i think are the most interesting design opportunities and starting off as a pa and then having my theater background that allowed me to do drawing and model building and knew how to decorate um, and knew how to make props that got me into many doors. And then I started just meeting people and just built those skills over, over time, you know, wow. it sounds like, it sounds again, that it's a very sort of challenging role. I'm, I'm just wondering, is there things that you gravitate towards specifically that you find very satisfying or is it nice to have that variety of of moving from very different project to very different project? Or is there something that you really love to do or would love to do? Like what's, where do you kind of get that, that fulfillment from? Uh, well, it, it, it's, it's, um, I kind of joke that I, almost every project is a master's degree. Like I have to learn so much about everything. I mean, that, that, that pilot project that I was talking about earlier, that was set in a company that designs mobile phone games which I didn't know anything about. So the first thing I had to do was learn deeply about what it means to design. What's the process and the methodology and the equipment and the rooms, the people that design those games. And so that I love that about my job is that it's never boring. You know, even if I'm doing um, more traditional architecture, it's about who are those people that live in that architecture and what do they do and what do they care about and how does that architecture relate to our storytelling and to those people. And, and so I think the thing that I get drawn to more than anything else is those is our stories that the environment is part of the story that 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 um, in, in many cases, I don't want to 
disparage any other type of work because I think good design is good design. But, you know, a police procedural in many ways, it's about it's not about the environments per se. I mean, an environment may, may be a clue into what's happened, but it's not so much about the environment creating the sense of the world as opposed to things like, you know, fantasy or science fiction or period pieces tend to um, tend to need the world to create something specific to the storytelling. So I generally gravitate toward those types of projects. God, that's so, that is so very interesting. And just, it sounds like, again, you don't have one normal day, but like in pre-production then versus sort of production, what does an average day look like? Like you show up and set work <laughs> a thousand hours in a, in a day? Yeah, it's a thousand hours. Yeah. I generally get up around 4.30 and I'm, you know, dealing with emails or researching or taking care of the job that I need to get done, you know, by five o'clock, 5.30 or so. Um, a lot of times these days, we don't have all of our people in the art department. They're in multiple time zones. So trying to keep track of people working three hours ahead or behind me um, makes, you know, lengthens my day. Um, generally speaking, I'll spend that morning doing the work that I need to do or trying to communicate with people in the different time zones. Then my day will end up being a series of meetings working with either the director or the producers or meeting with people to choose colors or textures or working with the set designers as they're trying to. So um, talking to the set decorator about the choices he or she is is making, you know, so there's um, it's it's a process of um, sorting out the day in terms of what each of those series of steps that need to be made to get us to the next series of steps yeah. and how those decisions can can process through and trying to organize the day around that. And um, it's definitely communicating. It's all about communicating with with lots of people um, and in various methodologies, whether it's text or email or phone calls. We do actually talk on the phone. We get in person sometimes, even these days, you get to talk to somebody face to face. Um, so it's um, it's that I it's it's I, I it's there was a movie a while ago, um, a, a documentary about the film industry. Like we're the only industry in the world that fights to work only twelve hours in a day. <laughs> well, that's uh, that's in America. Like that's definitely not happening in France. <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. <laughs> or, or, or yeah. for that matter, in many ways, it didn't work in New Zealand either. That's not how that's a it's a different work culture in New Zealand. But that didn't change the way what I had to do for, for my job. Right. Because I literally had people working all around the world uh, for for 18 months. I had there was almost at almost any day or time of day at any point of the week, except for partially sometime between Saturday and Sunday, there was somebody working on Rings of Power somewhere in the world literally the sun never set on the art department. So I was up at five o'clock in the morning talking to America and ending my day at nine o'clock at night talking to London, because that's how I could communicate with all the people that I needed to communicate with. And then in the middle of the day, dealing with the people that were in New Zealand and trying to find some time and all of that to do the work that I needed to do to make sure that I could feed the machine the next day. So it's, I, I do tend to, and most production designers I know tend to work on those type of fairly intensive schedules. It's just what it takes. So I would say there's not a wall, like there's like all these DIY, like, like kind of production design related jobs in, in, in all production designer houses that are never finished. Because you're <laughs> It's very true. It's very true. It it's took like... me almost five years to finish a, a, a kitchen remodel in our house. Yeah. It's like, yeah. <laughs> Because we yeah. say that with like builders as well. They're like their houses are always the worst. Because you get home, yeah. and you do not want to touch a hammer. Like, not. Yeah. 
And you get time. Like, I mean, this is a discussion here um, that like it's it's a big discussion now about burnout. Um, And I know like everyone works freelance. You might be kind of doing two or three like projects at a a time that all culminate in one go. Like I know that definitely happens to me. So I'm just wondering, like, do you guys take time between do you get to take time between jobs? I mean, things like of that scale, it sounds like you they just come and you just have to (laughs) adhere to them. It's so variable. I mean, it's great to be able to take the time off in between. And and generally speaking, we're paid well enough that if you deal with your money well enough, you can take that time off in between. But you, not, you, not, not crypto, like you're not investing all your money into crypto. <laughs> no, and you'll no, back. <laughs> oh, oh, no. Um, as much as I like science fiction. Uh, no, um, the the. Um, but it depends on when the jobs, when the job comes, the job comes, you know, and sometimes you will turn down a job because I just need to sit in a room or sit on a beach, you know, for a week or two or four, you know, because depending how, but, but sometimes when you just, the call comes and it's a cool job and you get on a plane the next day, you know, it's just the, the nature of the beast. And what would, what would be like one of the coolest things that you'd love to do? Like, you know, recreate a certain period or like design from scratch or, or like, what would be like one of those things that you'd be like, oh, that's my bucket list of jobs that I would well, love. <laughs> strangely enough, I grew up in Wyoming and I've never done a Western and I, I would actually love to do a nice meaty Western, you know, that has something to say about how people my family homesteaded in Montana, you know, so that I have a real kind of desire to do something that's a little, that's not the romanticized West, but that is about how tricky and difficult it really was, how the West was really a, a very brutal place. And I, I'd like to, I'd, I'd love to do a project that, that dug into that. God. Okay. Well, there we go. Let's see if we'll, <laughs> <laughs> we can we can see if there's any kind of budding directors with anything in there. In there, she can approach you at um at that really good festival in Belfast. If we've any Irish Irish American co pros in the mix from this, but that would be fabulous. But thank you so much for chatting. I could actually genuinely just ask you questions. Like it's so fascinating for hours, but I I'm very aware that your time is deeply valuable. And you Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. That's just been so interesting. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it very much. Mm-hmm.